I came across a story this week. I don't know if you have seen it, uh, but I'd like to share it with you. It's a story of a Chinese doctor who immigrated to America and could not find a job in a hospital in America. And so he decided to open up a clinic and to attract some customers. He put a sign outside that read this. Get treatment for $20. If not cured, get back $100. An American lawyer thinks this is a great opportunity to earn $100 and goes to the clinic. Trying to milk the system, the lawyer said to the Chinese doctor, Doc, I've lost my sense of taste. The Chinese doctor called to the intending nurse, Nurse, Bring medicine from box number 22 and put three drops in patient's mouth. When the nurse dropped three drops from box number 22, the lawyer exclaimed, Ugh, this is gasoline. The Chinese doctor said, Congratulations, your sense of taste is restored. Give me $20. Annoyed, the lawyer comes back after a few days to recover his money. The lawyer says to the Chinese doctor, Doc, I've lost my memory. I can't remember anything. The Chinese doctor said to the attending nurse, Nurse, bring medicine from box number 22 and put three drops in his mouth. The lawyer was annoyed. Doctor, that's gasoline. You gave this to me the last time for restoring my taste. The doctor said, Congratulations, you got your memory back. Give me $20. The lawyer was fuming this time and leaves and comes back a week later, determined to get back his money and earn $100. The lawyer said to the Chinese doctor, Doc, my eyesight has become very, very weak, and I can't see anything at all. The Chinese doctor said, Well, I don't have any medicine for that. So here you go. Take your $100. The lawyer, staring at the note, said, But doctor, this is not $100. This is $20. The Chinese doctor said, Congratulations, your eyesight is now restored. Give me $20. I like this story because it is a snapshot into the Christian life. In the Christian life, we live it trying to beat the system that God has set up. And if you're honest with yourself... You understand what I'm talking about. God has laid the ground rules. He's made the ground rules very simple. Live a life in the pursuit of holiness. Live your life with Christ-likeness. But the way we live this life, we try to game the system. We try to justify sins in our life instead of living a life simply in the pursuit of holiness. As we celebrate our church's 47th anniversary, we want to continue our study in the book of Zechariah. We want to talk about a topic that is dear to my heart because I myself have been convicted for it. And we want to talk about the sin myths that pervade our culture today. Myths of our culture that challenge the Christian life But not how the Bible tells we are to live it, but how the world tells us we are to live. If you remember in our study in the series entitled Return to Me, the book of Zechariah is an invitation by God to return to him, 
The theme verse is in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me and I will return to you. But in the invitation to return back to an intimate relationship with God, we are to return with lives that are ready to change. Lives that pursue holiness. Lives that do no longer play the game, but look to the Scriptures to see how we are to live it. I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 5 as we exposit verses 1 to 11. Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And we will be looking this morning at the sixth and seventh vision of Zechariah's eight night visions. You see, often in our lives, we are simply tolerant of sin and evil. We look at sin and we say it's okay. It doesn't bother us. We're desensitized to it. We hear something and we say, well, it's not much of an issue. This is the reality of the world in which we live. And yet when we look to the scriptures, we find out that holy God is intolerant to sin and evil. He never puts up with it. And that's what we want to see in our passage this morning. Zechariah chapter 5 Verse 1 to 3 reads this. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that shall go out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. In this sixth vision of Zechariah, there is a flying scroll, a scroll that is unraveled. It's a very large one. It's 30 feet by 15 feet, large enough and big enough so that everyone from that post-exilic community could see it. And there was... Something written on one side, and there was something else written on the other side. No one could plead ignorant that, oh, you know, I didn't see it. It it was too small. It was very apparent what was written on both sides of the scroll. And the message of the scroll is that God will punish those who have sinned against him. God will expel those from the land of promise. Now, specifically, what's written on one side of the scroll is a condemnation on those who have stolen something. On the other side is a condemnation of those who have perjured, those who have lied, sworn falsely using the name of the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, of all the things to condemn... There are horrible sins, more horrible than telling a lie and stealing something that could have been written there. He could have put on one side, those who have committed murder will be punished. And on the other side, those who have committed adultery. But of all the sins in this large scroll, it's interesting that the sin of lying and stealing are what are written out. You see, these sins are the third and the eighth of the Ten Commandments. And if you can see, 
Number three is the middle of the first five. And number eight is the middle of six through ten. You see, the implication is this. Everyone has broken all the laws. James chapter 2 verse 10 says very clearly, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. We need to be reminded of this as well. You see, here's the first myth of our culture today that pervades the way we live. We live with the myth of categories of sin. Here's what I mean. We think that as long as we don't commit murder, as long as we're better than someone else, as long as we're not as bad as someone else, then you know what? God can't be that mad, can he? In our minds, we rank sin. In our minds, there's such thing as a little lie and a big lie. In our minds, there's such thing as embezzlement and simply stealing for our needs. In our minds, there's a justification for this type of sin because everyone is doing it, but there's no justification for this type of sin because no one does it. As long as we're better than someone else, then we're pretty good. What's wrong with a little white lie? What's wrong with a little jealousy as long as no one knows? As long as we don't take action, we say, then it's no big deal. What does the Scripture say? The Scripture is very clear in these three verses. Number one, if you're taking notes. Sin is sin. In the eyes of God, sin cannot be justified under any circumstances, any reason. A lie is a lie to God. Covetousness is covetousness in the eyes of God. No disobedience is ever good in God's eyes. It's all sin. You see, what is wrong is wrong. It's without excuse. It's without exception. Friends, church, what is our view of sin? Do we tolerate it? Do we say it's no big deal, it's okay? Let's call sin for what it is. Yes, we want to picture God as a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of grace and a God of mercy. And he is all of those things. But don't forget that God is a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. He cannot tolerate evil. He cannot tolerate sin at any time, regardless of the circumstance. And if God has this view of sin, then we must have it as well. There was a man who was a very wealthy businessman. Uh, he was a business owner accustomed to giving orders and having his own way all the time. And one day he was traveling to an important meeting. He decided to take a shortcut and found himself thoroughly lost. This was the days before GPS. He asked the first person he saw, who happened to be a young child, for directions. He stopped, he rolled down his window, and he called to the little boy. Boy! Which way to Los Angeles, said gruffly. The little boy approached the car and said, Sir, I'm sorry, I, I don't know, a little embarrassed. Well then, the man demanded, How far is Orange County, which is a county that sits south of L.A.? The child answered, Sir, I'm sorry, I, I don't know that either. 
The man raised his voice. Is, is there someone around here who can give me directions then? The child shrugged his shoulder. Sir, I don't know. The man's questions got angrier as the boy kept responding with the same answer. Finally, the man lost his temper and shouted at the boy, Well, you don't know much, do you, boy? And for the first time, the boy smiled, looking up to a little house on the hill, which was his home. The young boy said, Sir, I don't know very much, but I'm not the one lost. So it is sometimes in our life. Doesn't matter if we don't have the best education or the nicest home or the biggest car or are the smartest persons in the world. God doesn't call us to those things. Throughout the scripture, God calls us to a life of obedience, following his ways. The boy in the story may not know much, but he knew where he was and where he stood. The man who had everything was the one who was lost. And unfortunately, that pervades a lot of people, and it pervades the lives of many Christians. They have everything, but they're so utterly lost in the way they live out their Christian life because they have so convoluted what God says about sin, and they become tolerant of it. And they don't call sin as it is, and they justify and play the game as long as I'm good enough and not as bad as someone else. Are some of you in business, are you some of you willing to deal with integrity and honestly apart from sin? The question I ask you is, are you willing to be poor for the sake of righteous living? And that's a tough question because most, most businessmen cannot affirm that in the affirmative. I enjoy the good things of life. I'm not willing to give up these good things to live a righteous life. You've got to ask yourself the question, am I willing to be dirt poor and live a holy life? You've got to ask yourself honestly, is it okay to lose that business deal or that transaction for the sake of righteousness? Now, you may justify in your mind, well, God, if I get this deal, perhaps through unethical or sinful means, I'll give you more tithing. Let me tell you very upfront, my friends, God doesn't want that money. God doesn't need that money. What does the Bible tell us very clearly? God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Or perhaps some of you in school, you didn't study for a test, you forgot to study, too many teachers gave you too many tests all at the same time, and so you just simply needed an extra booth, boost, and what did you do? You cheated, just to get a better grade. Can you proudly show the grade that you have received through cheating to your parents and to God? Let me tell you this. God would rather see a poor grade obtained honestly than a high grade received through sin. Did you get that? God would rather see a poor grade obtained honestly than a high grade received through sin. 
I know it's the running joke in our culture, and I've laughed about these as well, that everyone cheats in their Chinese classes. They laugh about the ways they cheat, how they got away with it, and we share these stories. And I've laughed at those things as well. But God never laughed. God never found it funny. He never did. Do you see how our culture has changed the ethics of the way we live our life? God would rather see a life that is by worldly standards average, below average even, but lived with integrity and Christ-likeness than so-called successful Christians who has obtained their success through sinful means. Remember, if it is wrong, it is wrong. It will always be wrong. It will never be right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It will never be right. Sin is sin. Verse 4. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. In verse 4, the punishment of the Lord is immediate. It will be severe. It is total. And this will find fulfillment in the millennium when Christ will reign in Jerusalem here on earth. We all now live in the church age, awaiting the rapture of the church. And so we live in what is called the age of grace. In the age of grace, we often think that sin will not find us out. Because we believe in a myth. I call it the myth of no consequence. The myth of no consequence says, you know what? God is a forgiving God. He will remember my sins no more. And that's true by his grace. But God never said there would be no consequence. When God says, I remember your sins no more. It means he will never take our sins and hold it against us. However, the Bible is also very clear that each of us, believers and unbelievers, must give an accounting of our lives. An accounting, everything that we have done. The book of Malachi tells us, as we've studied in the past, that a biography is being written about us. For all eternity it will be read what is being written about our life. We will all have to give an accounting of our lives. For the unbelievers, it is an accounting for their damnation. For the believer, it is an accounting for their rewards at the Bema. The Bible tells us in verse 4, no one will escape the revelation of sin. You see, some people thought that they could hide in their homes they could hide in the privacy of their homes. And maybe if they're found out, God would simply slap their hands and say, don't do it again. I caught you this time. Don't do it again. No, God is very clear in his words. He says, even your homes will not provide the protection from the judgment of God for those who have broken his law. Number two, if you're taking notes. Your sins will be found out. If not now, then eventually. Your sins will be found out. If not now, then eventually. The Bible is very clear about that. 
We live in the myth of no consequences. As long as no one finds out, I've gotten away with it. And we play this game. But all will be revealed at the end, Revelations 20 tells us. There's a story of an emperor from the Far East who was growing old and wanted to choose a successor. So he called all the young people from the kingdom and told them, I'm going to give each one of you a seed today. One seed. But it's a very special seed. I want you to go home, plant the seed, water it, and come back here in one year's time with what you have grown from this one seed. I will then judge the plants that you bring to me, and I will choose the next emperor of the kingdom. One of the boys who had gone to the palace at the behest of the emperor was a boy named Ling. Ling was excited. He ran home and told his mother about the seed is received. He asked his mom, Mom, give me a pot and some planting soil. So Ling planted the seed and watered it carefully. He did this faithfully every day. About three weeks' time, the other young people were talking about their growing plants and flowers. But for Ling, nothing was growing. Four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks went by, and still nothing. Six months and not a sprout in the pot. Everyone else had tall trees and plants. A year went by, and they all gathered and assembled again at the palace for inspection. Ling told his mother he did not want to go. I have nothing to show the emperor. But she encouraged him to go and take his pot and to be honest about what happened. When he got there, there were plants of all shapes and sizes. Many of the young people laughed at him when they saw that Ling's pot had not grown anything. When the emperor arrived, he looked and marveled and remarked at all the great plants. Then he spotted Ling without a plant in his pot and told his guards to bring Ling to him. The emperor asked his name. and He told the emperor, my name is Ling. And the emperor, to everyone's astonishment and surprise, announced to the crowd, behold, your new emperor, his name is Ling. To the astonishment of the crowd, the emperor explained, you see, one year ago, I gave everyone a seed. And you were to plant it, water it, and bring it back to me in a year. But the reason this seed was special is because I had boiled all the seeds, and these seeds would never grow. All of you, except Ling, have brought me trees and plants and flowers, because when you found out that your seed would not grow, you substituted another one for it. Ling was the only one with the courage and honesty to bring me a pot with my seed in it. Therefore, he's the only one worthy to be the next emperor. I share this story with you because many of us are not like Ling. When the dreams of our life do not seem to mature and flower into the way we want it to be, following the way of the cross, in discipleship, then we quickly exchange it out for the seed of the world. 
God has given each one of us through his son, Jesus Christ, the seed of the gospel message, the seed of the light of Christ in our lives. And we are to cultivate it. We are to mature it. Because it is that seed that will be uplifted and glorified by God at the end. A life of integrity, a life of honesty. And yet it may not flourish and the world may laugh at us. But do not ever get to the point of discouragement when you take out that seed and replace it with the seed of the world. Because the seed of the world will flourish, it will flower, and everyone will ooh and ah. That's what we want. We want lives where people tell us, wow, you're so great. But at the end, it is the life that has been planted with the seed of the gospel message that will be honored and glorified. My friends, I hope you will understand that. Our sins will eventually be found out. If not now, then in eternity. How then will you live? Some of you basketball fans know what has happened to one of the NBA superstars, a man by the name of Lamar Oden, these past few weeks. He's an L.A. Laker superstar. He was found almost dead in a brothel in Nevada, having done drugs, and they say now he overdosed on heroin and cocaine. As I read the news reports and the response from the world, you know what I read about? I read about how and what a nice guy he was. That's all we read about. What a nice guy. One of the nicest guys in the NBA, and he was. Old coaches came, old mentors. He was a nice guy. A nice guy found almost dead in a brothel. $75,000 he spent had everyone sign a confidentiality clause doing drugs. I hope one day he will come to know Jesus. But no one ever talks about those things. Everyone talks about what a nice guy he was and what an amazing superstar he was. What if he wasn't a superstar? Oh, we'd be so quick to jump on the bandwagon of condemnation. But so it is in the Christian life and in our lives as well. As long as we're not caught, as long as we're nice, as long as we're not as bad as someone else, then you know what? Maybe God is happy with my life. It is a life of integrity and honesty that will be uplifted and glorified in the end. Verse 5 to verse 8. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is the lead disc lifted up, and there is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. 
and he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. This is the seventh vision, very closely related to the sixth. And in this seventh vision, there is a basket with a woman inside. The Bible tells us it represents wickedness, the sins and the iniquity of the people. Wickedness is the opposite of righteousness. There's no sin that can ever be deemed righteous. And Zechariah asks, what's in the basket? And so they lifted the lid cover so that he could see that there is a woman called wickedness in it. And what did the angel do after Zechariah got a glimpse of it? He pushed the woman back down and threw the lead cover on top. He said, what does it mean? In that culture, when you have a basket, you, you, you have a covering over it, of course. Usually it's covered by a, a thin cloth, maybe a basket weave. It would cover the, cov- the top. That's all it did. But what's unique about this vision is that there is a lead cover, a heavy cover, that once it's placed on top of the basket, what's inside cannot do what? It can't come out. It can't push itself out. It's so heavy that what's inside the basket cannot come out. What this vision is saying to the people of Israel and to us today is that wickedness must be dealt with. You see, the myth of our generation today, is that as long as we identify the sin, as long, you know, as long as something happens and we feel bad about it, then it's okay. And so we're just convicted. It makes us feel bad. And because it makes us feel bad, we've done our penance. No. The Bible is very clear, number three. Number three, sin cannot simply be identified it must be destroyed sin cannot simply be identified it must be dealt with many come to church over these 47 years and they hear messages like this and perhaps this morning the spirit is talking into your heart Showing you areas in your life, as he showed me this week in preparation for this message. Areas of my life that need correcting. But many sit simply in the pulpit, convicted. But the moment they leave the sanctuary, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Because we believe in the myth that as long as you go through a few moments of angst, anxiety, feeling bad about something, then it's good enough. My friends, no. Sin must be dealt with. must be destroyed. You say, wow, pastor. Strong message on our church's anniversary. Where's the happiness in that? Where's the happy sermon? Let me tell you what, my friends. This year's 47... Next year's 48, following's 49, and then we get to the big 50, our golden anniversary. It's a number. And numbers do not mean anything if there is not a change in the life of the church. 
A number is but a number. You see, the celebration of church is the celebration of lives that have been transformed by the outworking of the Holy Spirit through the conviction of the living Word of God. If lives do not change, then there is nothing to celebrate. Fifty, one hundred, two hundred, it's a number. We don't celebrate the number. We celebrate the number of transformed lives, lives that are changing, moving away from wickedness into a life of righteousness. I've been to churches that are celebrating 100 years of existence, 200 years of existence, and they are dead. They put on a good show that Sunday, but they're dead. Why? Because that church long ago has stopped talking about the cross, about Jesus, and have long left the Scriptures. And so there may be people, but those people are not changed. No better time than our church's anniversary to remind again our congregation that sin cannot simply be identified. It must be dealt with. There must be a change. If God is speaking to your heart this morning, you walk out of this place to make a change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Behold, the old is passed away, the new has come. If we have been given new things, we don't take the old with us. I have a friend, a Christian, who struggles with pornography. In his late 30s, he's allowed me to share this story. And I asked him, as he struggles with this, I said, what are you doing to win this struggle? He said, Pastor, it's so hard. But I finally came to the decision that I must not have internet access. I said, really? Yeah. I'm not going to have internet access. In fact, he went as far as getting rid of his computer. Imagine that. Can any of you live without the internet? Can any of you live without your computer, your iPad, your, 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 your phone? But he came to a place in his life where he said to himself before holy God, I would rather live a holy life than not have internet access. And so we kind of kid him sometimes. Well, how do you get the news? And he says, through a newspaper. When you can come to a point in your life, my friends, to understand that sin is not only to be identified, it must be dealt with and destroyed. It will call you to a radically change life. Are you willing to do it? The vision that was given to Zechariah for the people was of a lead top that the wickedness inside the basket would never be let out again. Do you have those lead lids in your life? Or do you allow Satan to have a foothold 
into your life that when you are weak, the wickedness will work its way up, grab your life, and pull you back down. Unfortunately, most of us have a cloth covering over the basket of wickedness in our lives. Exchange them this morning with a lead lift, lid. Verse 9 to 11. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. The next thing Zechariah saw were two angels that were carrying this basket containing wickedness. And so Zechariah asked, well, where are you taking this basket of wickedness? And they told him to the land of Shinar. Shinar is the ancient name of Babylon. It was the recent place of Israel's exile. What is the significance of Babylon? The book of Genesis chapter 11 verse 2 tells us that Babylon was the ancient site of idolatry. Where a lot of the pagan religions came from where the center of the rebellion against God began. And Babylon will be in the future. Revelations chapter 17 tells us the future side also of idolatry and rebellion against God. We are bringing this basket of wickedness to Babylon because this is where wickedness belongs. Wickedness belongs in a place of wickedness. And the image should be very stark in your minds. Wickedness has no place in the holy land. Its place, verse 11, is in the place of wickedness. And that lesson should be very clear in the minds of the post-exilic people and for us as well. Wickedness has no place in a holy, sanctified life that we are supposed to live. Sin is incompatible. You see, that's the myth today. The myth of our generation says, yes, we can live a holy life and still sin a little bit. But number four, the Bible is very clear. Sin is never compatible with godly living. Sin is never compatible with godly living. That's the truth from the scriptures. The basket of wickedness is removed from the holy lands and placed in the land of Shinar, the land of wickedness, because that's where wickedness belongs. And the reality of truth is that many Christians try to straddle both lands. We know we're supposed to live with righteousness and holiness, but we've got one foot on the other side because we like the way the world lives. That's why the New Testament tells us very clearly, you cannot serve two masters. Either serve the one and hate the other, or you do vice versa. Sin 
is never compatible with godly living. Dispel the myth that says it can be done. You and I have a choice as a people of God. We have the choice of living a holy, sanctified life. Not perfect, but in that direction. Or we can live it in carnality. The choice is yours. You've got to choose one. Let's not play the game that you can straddle both. Sin is never compatible with godly living. So if you say in your hearts, in the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning, I want to live a godly life. I want a life that is holy and pleasing before God. Then you better make sure you take your foot off the world and begin to live it properly. No more games. No more games. Now you may be saying, wow, it's pretty intense, pastor. You don't know my life. And I tell you, you don't know my life. You may be sitting there thinking all is lost. Too much sin in my life that I can't please God in any way. I want you to know, my friends, that God has provided a way for us to be cleansed before him. To return to him. That is his invitation in the book of Zechariah. He will help us. That cleansing only occurs through the acceptance of the gift of salvation through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sin. And all we need to gain that cleansing blood is to accept the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, if there are some of you who have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I plead with you to do so. Because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Nothing. It is only when the God-man, Jesus Christ, died in our place that the sins of the world were put upon him, past, present, and future, that deals with our sin problem. And for those of us who have accepted this free gift of salvation, it should so change our lives that we say, Lord, we want to live a godly life. When we want to live a godly life, it is incompatible with the way we used to live. Something has changed. We are a new creation. Sin is no longer compatible. And God will give us the victory. And he will help us. The Bible tells us he declared victory over death. Declared victory over sin. You can live a holy life. With the help of the Holy Spirit. There was a university student at a major university in a logics course. And they were coming down to their final exam. The professor made an unusual offer to all of his students who were preparing for their final exam. He told them, class, you can bring on the day of the final exam as much information as you can fit into one notebook paper, eight and a half by 11. And I know that many of you have been offered that by your university professors as well. And so every student was so excited. They went back and they crammed and wrote as small as they could all of the formulas, all of the examples to help them in their final exam. But one student was different. On the day of the examination, he walked into the class, put a piece of notebook paper on the floor, and he had a brilliant advanced logic student who had taken the class before and the final exam before to stand on the piece of paper. 
The professor said, well, you can't do that. The student said, logically, that all you said, professor, was anything that fits on a short notebook piece of paper. And he's standing on the notebook piece of paper, and that's why he's here. Could not argue with that, and so the professor allowed that. The advanced logic student told him everything he needed to know on the test. As a result, he was the only student in the class to receive an A. That is the picture of the final examination of our life. When you have to stand before God and he asks you, why should I give you eternal life? So many people, including Christians, are trying to cram in as many things as they can on a piece of paper to hand to God and say, God, I've been a good person. Let me in. God, this is the way I've lived my life. Here you go. No, it's not how you get in. No matter how much you know, you don't have on that piece of paper the right answer to that question. Because we have someone who will stand in from us and he will answer the question correctly and his name is Jesus. And he will say when the question is asked, why should I let you in? He will say this because of my blood that the man, woman, child next to me is cleansed. Jesus died for our sins. He took the F that we deserve so that we could get that A and pass. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus went to the cross to die for my sins and your sins so that we can stand before God perfect. Why in the world would you then live a life dirtying the perfectness of how you stand before the Lord with sin? As we celebrate our 47th anniversary, what do we give God? We don't give God a church building. We don't give God a lot of activities. We give back to God our very lives. Nothing would please God more than on this 47th anniversary and 48 and 49 and 50 until how many years God gives us that we stand before Him every year and we give to him our lives, and we say to him, God, thank you for what you did on the cross through your son. I come to the understanding that sin is incompatible with godly living. I will view sin as you view sin, because I know that I must give an accounting of my life, and all sin will be revealed, if not now, but at the end. And I will not only identify it, Lord, I want to change it. I want to destroy it. I want to deal with it. So that the seed of integrity and of character will that be revealed on the day of glory. That, my friends, is the gift we give back to God. It is of a church that is transformed. It is of a church that continues to be more Christ-like. And all of you are the church. 
you are the body of Christ. And we bring before the Heavenly Father the collective lives of all those who are sitting here this morning giving to Him the praise and adoration He deserves through a transformed life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is convicting even to me, a man who is by no means perfect, but a man who is broken. And I pray, Lord, this morning through your living word that all of us would examine our lives and identify areas that we need to change and change today. But not only go through the motions of identifying it, but beginning to implement the change that is needed. Not for anyone to say ooh and ah of how we have changed, but because we know it will please you. We want to have the same mind as you have as it relates to sin. We want to stand before you in the day of glory and bring before you our empty potted plant, not because it has flourished in the world, but because the gospel seed, the seed of Christ in our life, has been nurtured And there it is in eternity that the seed of Christ will find its adoration and victory. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Continue to use it mightily in your special way in the ministry. Let it be the city that is upon the hill that lights out to this community a different way of living, a different way of doing things because of Jesus Christ. May this church always be centered upon the Word of God. May this church always Look to the cross. May each church member always have preeminent in their lives Jesus Christ. And in that, we hope we can be a church that you are pleased with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.